Right, turn back there to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians in chapter number 1. Is where we are this week. We've been preaching through this epistle, this wonderful little book in the New Testament. I guess it's one of the larger books in the New Testament. Uh, where Paul addresses for the first time the Corinthian church. Um, we, we know that this is the first time anyways that he has written to the church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Though there are other epistles written to the Corinthians that were not necessarily inspired. Uh, Paul references them in the inspired epistles. And the, the, the way we, we would account for that is simply that uh, though Paul was an apostle, that does not necessarily mean that everything he ever says and does is directly inspired by God. And there's no doubt he wrote other writings and preached many a sermon that were not under the inspiration of God. But those writings that do wind up in the canon of Scripture, having been attested to by the Holy Spirit, are no doubt the words of God, the inspired words of God. So we come to 1 Corinthians and we're preaching through this book. And as you can tell by now, uh, we're not in a rush. Uh, we are our fifth weekend, and we're coming now to verse 17 of chapter number 1. Verse 17 of chapter number 1. And I'm going to just read two verses to you this evening. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, beginning at verse 17. These are the words of God. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. As we come to this portion of chapter number 1, we see that Paul has finished up his section on factions in the church. The last several weeks, we looked at the divisions that were plaguing the Corinthian church. And he is about to launch into a very philosophical discussion of worldly wisdom versus the wisdom of God. So in these two verses tonight, verses 17 and 18, we have the concluding words on church unity and a wedding of the appetite, so to speak, for the discussion on wisdom. And wedged in between these two pressing subjects is a poignant declaration of the preeminent power of the cross. We sang about the power of the cross just a few minutes ago. And I want you to understand that no matter what problems we are facing, regardless of what our spiritual need may be, Whatever may be burdensome upon our hearts, the supply of grace and the divine power to persevere will be found in the cross and in the cross alone. This text emphasizes for us the connection between the preeminence of the cross and the power of the cross. When you keep the cross in its rightful place as the focal point of your Christian life, when your very existence is oriented around Calvary, when the cross becomes the very epicenter of who you are and all that you do, then and only then will you be able to experience the fullness of the cross's power. But when you relegate the cross to an afterthought, 
when the cross is just an addition to your life and not the definition of your life? When the cross is just something you think about for an hour and a half on Sunday? Then you'll be extremely limited in your encounter of the transformative power of the cross in your own life. What's worse still is that by missing the essence of Calvary, you may not experience the cross at all. You may not ever come into contact with the cross as a a means of grace that God has devised for His people, but instead the cross will be to you a conduit of condemnation and wrath. So nothing could be more important for you this evening than to understand who you are in relation to the cross of Jesus Christ. Who are you in relation to Calvary? Now I have just two points tonight. And if you think that the length of the outline is representative of the length of the sermon, you might be sadly mistaken. Because under those two points, we have many, many subpoints. I'm, I'm just teasing you all. Uh, but we do have just two things that I want you to see about this text tonight, these two verses tonight. The first is the preeminence of the cross. The, the preeminence of the cross in verse 17. In verse 17, Paul states for us the, the heart and soul of his ministry. This is the meat and potatoes of what Paul was called to do as an apostle. For Paul, the the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, and this is the main thing. What is Paul called to do? Well, I want you to see Paul presents a negative, then he presents a positive, then he presents another negative, and he supplies us with the reasoning for this statement. What is this statement? Paul says, For Christ sent me, here's the negative, not to baptize. That's not what I came for. My my purpose in coming to you is not just to baptize, but to preach the gospel. The other negative, not with words, not with wisdom of words. And then the reasoning, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. In other words, Paul tells us what he's not supposed to do, that is, come to baptize. Then he tells us what he is supposed to do, that is, preach the gospel. But then he tells us that there is a wrong way to do what he is supposed to do, which would be to preach the gospel, but do so with the wisdom of words. I want you to understand, God has given us all a work to do. Each one of you that believe upon the Lord Jesus are tasked with a work to do. And there's two ways to be disobedient. The first is to just flat out do something else other than what God has tasked us to do. But the second way, and I fear that for most Christians, this is the way that we are most often disobedient, is that we do what God has called us to do, but we don't do it in the way that God has called us to do it. We do it in a wrong way. I want you to understand that not only must we do what the Lord has called us to do, but we must do it in the way in which He's called us to do it. And there's something that He calls all of His people to do in the exact same way. Read your Bible. Pray. Commit yourself to a local church. So on and so forth. 
But then there's specific tasks and specific roles and specific ministries and specific positions that God gives His individual people that He doesn't always give to others. For instance, Jared, God has given you the position of a father. That's something that He's not yet given to me. Right? So that's something specific that God gives to some of His people that He doesn't give to others. And, And there's a a way to be a father that is according to the Word of God and therefore the right way to do it, and then there's the wrong way to do it. So don't think just because you're doing outwardly what God has called you to do, don't think that that automatically means that you're being obedient. God has called me here to the ministry in Paris, Tennessee. But if I don't go about the ministry in the way the Word of God says to do it, I'm being disobedient, am I not? And so Paul says it's possible to do God's work, but if you don't do it the way God tells you to do it, you're being disobedient. And what is Paul's work? Well, if you remove the negatives from verse 17, you see it. For Christ sent me to preach the gospel, the cross of Christ. This was the supreme calling upon the life of the Apostle Paul. Above everything else, Paul was called to be a preacher of the gospel of Christ. And he provides for us a very succinct definition of the gospel as the cross of Christ. Now obviously the gospel presentation includes more than just the cross, does it not? The holiness of God... The sinfulness of man, these must be declared. God's purpose to save a people for His own peculiar possession must be understood. The burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ, these are all aspects that are indispensable to the gospel. But Paul specifically mentions for us here the cross because it is that old rugged cross on Golgotha's hill, that is to take the superlative preeminence in gospel preaching. It's to take so much of an eminence that it is accurate to look at Calvary and to say that is the gospel. That man hanging upon that cross, that is the gospel. And if we fail to preach that, We fail to preach the gospel because rising up from the the narrative of redemption is this towering edifice of Mount Calvary. And upon that mountain stands a cross and it casts its glorious shadow upon all other truths and all other messages. In other words, everything we preach, everything we do as Christians, everything we do as ministers of the gospel is to be oriented around the cross of Calvary. And without the cross, there is no gospel. Apart from the cross, Jesus Christ has no purpose in the plan of God. Central to the reality of Christianity is the cross of the Lord Jesus. And we may differ on finer points of the Christian religion, but there can be no room for disagreement when it comes to what transpired upon the cross of Calvary. It would be better for us to disagree about everything else and agree about the cross 
than it would be for us to disagree about the cross even though we agreed about everything else. Because the very character of God is manifested on the cross. God defined Himself for us on the cross. You want to know who God is? Look to Calvary. And you'll soon learn that God is holy and God is righteous and God is love and God is a savior and God is a judge and God is wrathful and God is merciful and God is gracious and God is mighty. God manifested himself, revealed himself on the cross. No greater demonstration of the attributes of God have ever been given to mortal men than upon the cross. And so Paul, though he is a church planner, a pastor, a missionary, a teacher, a writer, a discipler, Paul says that all of these other things that he's called to do are menial hobbies in light of his calling to preach the gospel of Christ. It's interesting that this phrase, to preach the gospel, is translated from one word, One word that literally just means to declare the glad tidings. Paul is called to preach the good news of God. And everything else he does is to fall under the banner of his ministry, which is preaching the gospel. That's what he's called to do. In essence, he's called to one particular thing, preaching the gospel, and everything else is a subset of accomplishing that one grand and glorious task. And by having such a commission, Paul is able to uphold the preeminence of the cross. If Paul was called to be a baptizer and the cross was subsidiary, the cross would lose its prominence. Paul was called to be a motivational speaker and he just had a couple talks on the cross. He wouldn't be a preacher of the gospel. But above all, Paul's chief work is to preach that substitutionary death of Christ in the stead of ruined sinners. Paul is to declare that the sinless Son of God was made to be sin on the cross so that He could die in the place of those He came to redeem. Paul is to announce the vicarious death of Christ who gave Himself freely for those He loved. And Paul is preaching the blessed Gospel of the Lord Jesus. That gospel that is joy producing and sin cleansing and soul transforming and eternity altering and God glorifying and Christ exalting and world conquering. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And only when the message of the cross ascends to its rightful place of preeminence does the gospel retain the fullness of divine power so as to accomplish all that it is purposed to do. The end of verse 17 warns us of what happens when something else supersedes the preeminence of the cross. Paul says, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. See, when you take your eye off of Calvary, and when you shift your focus to anything else, even good things, you strip the cross of its power. Christianity is the only religion in the world 
where all of the grace of God, all of the divine blessings, all of the heavenly riches are given to us through the medium of faith. Faith alone. In Christ alone. And when you take your eye, that is the eye of faith, when you take it off of the cross and you place it on anything else, you begin to close that medium through which God administers His grace unto you. And you strip the cross of the power for which it is intended to work in your life. And Paul addresses three dreadful hindrances to the preeminence of the cross in this verse. I want you to understand that the human heart will slip away from the gospel every chance it gets. Even the hearts of Christians were so easily lured away by hindrances to the gospel message. And if we do not endeavor to keep the cross in a position of preeminence within our own lives, Paul says these are three things that will take us over and detract us from the glorious Gospel of the cross. Well, what are these three hindrances in verse 17? The first one is external pietism. External pietism. Paul says it right there at the beginning of the verse. Christ sent me not to baptize. And in making this statement, Paul is referring directly to the practice of the Corinthians of using baptism as a means to further divide the church. Those of you who have been in on this study the last several weeks, you know that we looked at that section where the church is all divided and they're all fighting amongst themselves and they begin to make their baptism a point of contention with other church members. And so Paul rebukes them by saying, was Paul baptized for you? Was he crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So Paul tells the Corinthians, Christ did not send me to baptize. And so Paul is distancing himself from these factions, but that's not all he's doing. There's a bigger picture in view, and there's a principle behind this phrase. And that is that he's making a sharp distinction between the heart of what Christ sent him to do and the external accoutrements of his mission, so to speak. Yes, there are externals to the Christian life. There are outward acts that we are to perform as expressions of our religion. And yes, baptism is one of them. Paul would be the first to tell you how important it is to have scriptural baptism. And there are other things such as the the Lord's Supper and prayers and church attendance. And yes, even financial contributions that are important aspects of our Christian religion. But these externals are to never replace the finished work of the cross in God's economy of grace. In other words, the gospel of Christ and the cross of Christ are the reason for these externals. Why do we practice scriptural baptism? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. Why do we partake of the Lord's Supper? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. Why do we serve one another? Because Christ came to serve us on the cross. And anytime we start putting the externals first, anytime we put the cart before the horse, we're destined to crash. 
Anytime we say that the entry point to the Christian life is the waters of baptism and not the cross, we undermine the foundation of faith through which God desires to save His people and we make the cross of Christ of none effect. See, if your sin is washed away in the baptismal waters, what point does the cross have for you? What does it have to offer for you? If you can justify yourself through supposed good works, what benefit is the cross to you? But if there is absolutely less than nothing that you could do to contribute to your salvation, if there is no good work that you could perform to justify yourself, then the cross... It's really the only thing that matters in the Christian life. We find that it's all the cross and nothing less. All the cross and nothing less. The cross is the reason for these externals. Because these externals point back to the cross. Where there's no preaching of the cross, there's no need for baptism. What are, we, what are we symbolizing in baptism? We're symbolizing the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. If there's no preaching of the cross, there's no need for the Lord's Supper. He said, this do ye in remembrance of me. What are we remembering? We're remembering the cross. Therefore, the truth of Calvary must stand immeasurably amongst all of these external rites. But when we allow external pietism to become central in our religion, when we become, become so focused on the externals, we strip the cross of its power and relegate ourselves to some kind of wooden sacramentalism. We see the symptoms of that in society today, do we not? You ask someone, tell me how the Lord saved you or tell me when you were converted. Well, I was baptized at such and such age at such and such church. It's not what I asked you. When did you go to Calvary? Because that's where the Lord saves sinners. He saves them at the foot of the cross, not in a baptistry. Well, I joined the church. I was confirmed in the church. That's not what I asked you. Do you know the man who hung upon the cross to save your soul? Well, I give this much money and I've been a faithful church member for this long and every Thanksgiving I volunteer at the soup kitchen. That's not what I asked you. All those are wonderful things. I hope all of you who are saved here this evening, all of you who are in Christ, I hope that you have been baptized. I hope you are a member of a church somewhere. I hope you do give financially to the Lord's work. I hope you do sacrifice your time and your energy, but that's not what I'm asking you. That's the symptom that we deal with day in and day out right here in the Bible Belt. Conversion and salvation happen at one place and one place alone and that is at the foot of the cross upon which the Son of God died to take away the sins of His people by the once offering of Himself. 
And if you're trusting on anything else other than that one offering of Christ, you have a false trust and a faith that can save you not even a little bit. Because the efficacy of your faith, it's not about how firm it is. Oh, I know some people that have mighty strong faiths. The efficacy of your faith is in the object of faith. What is your faith in? And the weakest of faiths in Jesus Christ will save you to the uttermost. Whereas the strongest of faiths in your baptism or your sinner's prayer or your altar decision will not save you at all. Do you have faith in the message of the cross? External pietism makes the cross of no effect. The second hindrance to the preeminence of the cross. Empty philosophies. Empty philosophies. Paul says, I'm sent to preach the gospel, but not with the wisdom of words. Not with the wisdom of words. Now there's really two different pitfalls to be avoided in this phrase, wisdom of words. The first and main thrust of this expression is the trap of empty philosophies. And with this, Paul is whetting our appetite for the next section of this epistle where he just lays bare the vanity of human philosophy. And we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but it is important to realize that these vain philosophies are so dangerous because they lure us away. Deceitfully and deceptively, they they draw us away from the simplicity of the cross. These words of wisdom that Paul speaks about, the wisdom of words, refer to human wisdom with human origin that stands in direct opposition to the message of the cross. Now this is not a declaration against intellectual speech or elevated vocabulary as I've often heard it explained that way. This is not teaching us that we need to sound uneducated and idiotic in order to be a preacher of the gospel. As I've so often heard this text abused to me, and that's not what it's saying at all. So just because you have a preacher or you're reading a book or you're listening to a sermon and there's a word used that perhaps you don't understand and it's got more than three syllables and more than eight letters, don't pull out 1 Corinthians 1.17 and tell him, well, you're not preaching with simplicity, you're preaching with the wisdom of words. That's not what Paul's talking about at all. In fact, Paul was no doubt a very educated man, and his writings are amongst the most structured and challenging in the whole New Testament. Paul writes with a vocabulary that is far above some of the other authors of the New Testament. But what this verse does denounce is mixing the message of the cross with humanistic thought and ideology. That's what it's addressing. Taking the philosophies and the psychological teachings of the world that are not rooted in the gospel and the word of God and trying to mix that together with the gospel. Aristotle has no place in the pulpit. God calls men to be preachers of the gospel not philosophers of the gospel. And a preacher, that that word preacher, that preaching, it's such an interesting word because it doesn't say anything about what is being preached. In fact, the preacher is completely passive in that verb. He is nothing more than a mouthpiece. And a preacher is one who simply declares the truth 
as it is given by God. A preacher is not one who innovates new truth and slaps a Christian vocabulary on it. God wants you to be happy, wealthy, and healthy all the time. In Jesus' name. <laughs> what is that? That's strict humanism with a Christian vocabulary on it. That's Epicureanism. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh, doing whatever pleases me. But you mix it with the gospel and say that that's what God wants for your life. And that's why Jesus came to earth. And you've made a damnable message twofold as, as bad. May we always keep our conjectures and our ideas and our own opinions far, far away from the proclamation of Christ and His cross. My own prayer for myself is that my own thoughts and opinions about different things would never interject into the message of God that He has given us. May we be faithfully bound to the text, to the Word, May we never go beyond, thus saith the Lord. We will never improve upon the perfect Word of God and the Immaculate Gospel with the addition of worldly philosophy. You'll never do it. So just avoid it. Paul says don't use the wisdom of words. Preach the gospel not with the wisdom of words. And the third hindrance to the gospel message, the third hindrance is eccentric performances. Eccentric performances. The secondary application of Paul's ban on the wisdom of words regards a form of preaching that is the message of the cross in name only. It's the message of the cross in name only. It pretends to be the preaching of the gospel, but in reality, it's another message altogether. And it is a message that is aimed to please man and not God. It is a message that is conveyed as very appealing and very wise in the mind of the natural man. But this message is detested by God because it subtracts from the preeminence of the cross. This is a message that tickles the ears with a slick presentation. This is a message given with flashy delivery that woos and awes the congregation. This is a message that avoids sin and righteousness. This is a message that fails to deal with the heart issues of man and focuses on fickle sentimentality. Preaching at the emotions of man instead of preaching at the heart of man. There is a distinction. You want to know how you're all controlled? The mind controls the emotions and the, the mind and the emotions together drive the will. So preaching at one aspect of man, only focusing on the sentimentalities of man is not preaching. It's using the wisdom of words to woo and awe a congregation. Paul is condemning a message that sounds so sophisticated that it puffs up the congregation when it's really not saying anything at all. A message that is a mile wide and an inch deep. God has never called anyone to preach such a message. And it is the epitome of blasphemy to do so and call it the gospel. 
And a lot of what goes on in America today that is called gospel preaching is not gospel preaching at all. So we would do well to heed the exhortation of Paul when he says to preach the cross, preach the preeminence and the power of the cross and do so not with wisdom of words, but with godly simplicity. Preach the truth as it is given. Do not go beyond what is written. God calls His preachers to proclaim the straightforward, pointed truths of the gospel. Preachers are not to be those who mince words and play oratory gymnastics. Preachers of the cross are to be purposed and direct. And this is why God commissioned Paul and all other preachers that are truly called by God to share this same responsibility. And sometimes, quite frankly, it can be a challenging responsibility to know that you have absolutely no license to go beyond what is written. On both sides of the pulpit, that can be a challenge. In your own day-to-day life, when you come across a command or directive in the Word of God that's hard on the flesh, that's hard on the will, uh, that requires exertion of our energy and desires and a, a disciplining of our own affections and a changing of our own mind, we don't have response, the, the, the divine authority, the license to change what God has directed us. We have to be bound to this word. It's our only guide for faith and practice. Not to focus on baptism or the other externals. Not to magnify the philosophies of men. Not to exalt charisma and gratify the desires of the flesh. But to faithfully preach the gospel as it has been given by God. And when preachers are obedient to this task, the cross assumes its rightful place of preeminence. Now the second point. Verse 18. That was the preeminence of the cross. I want you to see now the the power of the cross. The power of the cross. Paul says in verse 18, for. And that, that tells us that his argument in verse 18 is building upon verse 17. He says, for. So we see that the power of the cross is directly related and dependent upon the preeminence of the cross. When these hindrances rise up, the cross is made of no effect. When these hindrances are all cast down and the cross stands alone, unveiled in all of its radiant glory, then it has an effect of divine proportion. Do you see that? That when we keep our focus upon the cross, we exalt the message of the cross, and we're always focused in thinking and, and dreaming and pondering about the truths of the gospel, then that gospel has great power in our life. But when we're compartmentalized, when we we think about the gospel for an hour on the Lord's day, and then we're all caught up thinking about everything else under the sun, the gospel does not have that same transformative power in our life. That's what Paul is communicating here. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of of God. And it is by this power that God continues his purpose in the world. 
Now I want you to see in verse 18 that God divides the entire world into two groups. And each one of you here tonight and everyone who has ever lived is in one of these two groups. There's no uh, halfway, midway option. There's two groups for every soul that has ever lived. Here they are. One is them that perish. Them that perish. And the other is us which are saved. Them that perish, us which are saved. And Paul puts himself in the us which are saved crowd. (laughs) Now I want you to see the subtle distinction between these groups. Uh, Notice that perish is a verb. Them that perish. It is a verb and it is something that those in the first group are doing themselves. They are the active cause in their own Perishing. No one caused them to perish. No one forced them to perish. Oftentimes, those of us who believe the truths of God's sovereignty as it relates to salvation, we're often accused of making God the author of sin. And the illogical question is asked, Well, how can men be responsible for sin if God ordained all things? Well, Paul says here that it's them that are perishing. It's them that are sinning. It's not God that sinned for them. You understand? And so they're the the active cause in their own perishing. But notice that the word saved, saved is an adjective to describe a condition that those in the second group have been placed into by a power outside of themselves. It doesn't say them that perish and them that are saving themselves. (laughs) No, it says them that perish and them that are saved. It's a truth concerning them. And it shows us that they have nothing to do with their own state of salvation. No, what man does on his own is perish. And those who are in the second group of them which are saved, us which are saved, before they were in that group, they were in the first group who were perishing. But something happened to them. Something interceded in their life. Something interjected into that active perishing that they were doing themselves and dramatically wrought a change within them, calling them out of that condition of perishing and placing them into a condition of being saved. Both of these terms are in the present tense. So it would be accurate to say that those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And those in the first group, they have perished, they are perishing, and they will perish. And what a dismal state that is. We see that apart from the Son of God, there is only death. Apart from the Son of God, there is only death. But for the second group, this verse hints at the three tenses of salvation. That is, they were saved in the the instance that they apprehended Christ by faith and received the gospel. They were saved. And now presently, by the power of the Spirit of God, through progressive sanctification, they are being saved from the power of sin. And beloved, there's coming a day 
when Christ shall return and receive His own, and we shall be finally saved from the very presence of sin, glorified and made likened unto Him. Those of you in Christ, you were saved the moment you believed. You're being saved by the power of the Spirit of God working within you even at this moment. And yet there remains a salvation for you when you shed this human flesh and you're transformed into the likeness of Christ in His glorified body. What a blessed gospel. What a glorious redemption. From eternity to eternity. Planned before the foundation of the world between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, executed on Calvary's cross, applied by the Spirit, and perfected by the triune Godhead in eternity. Oh, what a precious redemption. Wrought through Jesus Christ. And this verse, verse 18, doesn't just state the division, but it gives the source of the division, does it not? What determines what group you fall into? There's two groups. Them that are perishing, them that perish, and those which are saved. Which group are you in? How, how do you make that determination? Well, the determination is made by whether or not the cross is preeminent in your own heart and life. What did those that perish perceive the cross to be? How did they view the gospel? Well, they they viewed it as foolishness. So when you're entrapped by external piety, when you're confounded by outward shows of religion, when you don't understand the sinfulness of man, when you see yourself far too highly than you ought, the message of the gospel is foolishness to you. How can... A Palestinian that died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago have any bearing on your own heart and soul. It's foolish. You're pretty good, right? When you're deceived into thinking that salvation is dependent upon something that you have done, or when you're deceived into thinking that you're so good you don't need to be redeemed from anything anyways, the gospel is idiotic. It's moronic. It's stupid. The word foolishness literally comes from a word from where we get our word moron from. Moronic. And those who are tantalized by human philosophies, they're not going to receive the simplicity of the cross. They lack the the moral apparatus to comprehend the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man. They cannot come to grips with a brutal and gruesome death as the one and only payment for the penalty of sin. And even we today struggle to understand the, the stark reality of the cross. See, we use the cross as an ornament, as a decoration. We we hang it up on the wall and we wear it around our neck. And you know what we've done? We've we've desensitized ourselves to how barbaric and shameful that cross really is. The cross is not a fashion statement, friend. The cross is a place of intense reflection as God was on full display in the might of His divine attributes. But the message of the cross, what took place on Calvary, it's foolishness to them that perish. Their eyes are blinded. And they do not understand the bearing that Christ's death has upon their eternity. See, the gospel is incomprehensible to those who need it the most. 
And lost people do not possess the ability to understand the gospel. And therefore they consider the cross of Christ foolish. You say, this sounds pretty dismal. Sounds like there's no hope for them. Well, there's no hope within them, that's for sure. They have no power to comprehend the gospel. Therefore, therefore the efficacy of the gospel must be rooted in the power of God alone. Because it is God who opens blinded eyes so that they might perceive the glory of Calvary. First God saves man from his rebellion against the truth. Then God saves man with the application of the truth. And only God can do this. Salvation is of the Lord. It is God who leads us to Calvary. It is God who enables us to perceive Christ. It is God who enables us to repent of our sin and believe upon Him. And it is God that secures us in the faith. And it is God that keeps us believing in Christ until the final day. We can never do it on our own. Had it not been for God opening your mind, you would say, with this bunch that's perishing, that the gospel is foolishness. Well, that strips us of human pride, does it not? There's nothing for us to boast in. You're not saved because you make better decisions than other people. You're not saved because you're smarter than other people. You're not saved because you made a choice that they didn't make. You're saved because God has mercy on whom He will have mercy. And though you were undeserved, He had mercy upon you. Friend, that is the gospel. And Paul says as much, Unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The power of God. Having cast aside religiosity and shut the mouths of vain philosophers and placed our faith in the truth of the gospel, it is this power that saves them. It is the power of God that causes us to sing, Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. What a contrast between these two groups. And what makes this contrast? What makes us see the cross as the power of our salvation? And what makes them see the gospel as foolishness? Well, it's not the will of man. It's not fleshly ability. It's not some conceived goodness within ourselves. But it is the power of God. And the word of the cross is far more powerful than self-help seminars. All the methods of men will be wholly unable to do the work in you that only the cross can do. See, these self-help books, they may change how you act, but only Jesus can change who you are. The power of God identifies you and places you in Christ upon the cross so that when He died, you died. And how can you, who have died with Christ, go on living as if you had not? The life you live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you. Friends, this is the message of the cross. This is the one task that Paul was given. This is the calling of God upon my life and to some extent it's the calling of God upon yours to first believe this message and then tell it to others. And you need to earnestly and sincerely search your own heart and determine which group you fall into right now at this very moment. When you hear the cross of Christ preached, 
When you hear of Jesus of Nazareth who lived a perfect life and was nailed to that old rugged tree, do you count that message foolishness? Or do you say in your heart, Lord, this is your power on display in the cross and this is what has saved me. The cross is the conduit through which God manifests His saving power. And I ask you tonight, have you experienced the power of redemption in your own heart and life? Have you been to Calvary? And have you tasted of the preeminent power of the cross? Let's pray. Father, we thank You in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ for Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You for the full display of of your Son upon the cross of Calvary. We love you because you first loved us, because you sent your Son to die for us on the cross, that the bondage of sin in our lives might be broken, that we might be redeemed unto thee. And Father, we trust wholly in your all-sufficient grace to keep us in the faith until the Lord Jesus comes. It's in his name we pray. Amen.